Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. So glad you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by um, Squared, the man behind Apologetics Squared. Uh, we're talking about non-traditional oh. arguments for the existence of God. So Apologetics Squared, uh, what's up, man? How's it going? It's going well. Thank you for asking. Yeah, and I'm really pumped for this conversation. And we're talking about all kinds of fun stuff with regard to arguments from God for God, from like time travel to politics to counterfactuals to all this fun stuff. Yes. Um, but before we get into this, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, what got you interested in like things like this, and um, what's with the an an anonymity, bro? Where the man apologetic squared? What's up? Mm. The thing is, I, I'm secretly Richard Swinburne, but I try to keep that <laughs> kind of hidden. Um, yeah. So thing is, I just really enjoy this kind of philosophy of religion stuff. And the way I think things through really is I like to visualize concepts and like, I, I will map out a concept in my mind and I have like this image and I'm like, Hey, I should like draw this out for somebody. Like I could, um, I, whenever I, uh, read an argument or something, I think that, Hey, I could, if somebody else has the same kind of visual style of learning, I think I could make a cool kind of way of representing that argument to them. So that's kind of been my motivation. Yeah, mm. it's super, yeah, it's super interesting because I think like there's all kinds of different kinds of learners um, mm -hmm. who learn through like maybe like activity or seeing. Um, so it's really cool what you're doing on your channel with like these short videos looking at like different topics um, with regards to like arguments for God's existence, the resurrection, um, all kinds of fun stuff. So yeah, I think you. to start off, um, do you want to add anything about like your channel or what you got going on before we get into uh, these non-traditional arguments? Um. Well, right now I'm going through a uh, sh short little videos on different views of God's foreknowledge. And I'm going to try and like uh, at some point give like my own personal theodicy, make a uh, video on that. But like my, my personal theodicy relies on Molinism. So I'm trying to get, you know, bits of the foreknowledge series out of the way before I get into that. But yeah, that's, that's kind of what I have in mind for uh, videos I'm going to be releasing soon. Yeah, it's super fun, um, and I'm looking forward to what's going on. Welcome, everyone, to join us. We're going to dive into some non-traditional arguments for the existence of, existence of God. So to start mm -hmm. off, um, we talked about just, like, framing, like, the value of these arguments. Like, um, you when you bring forth, like, the political argument for God's existence or the argument <laughs> yeah. from sets for God's existence, like, when you're looking at these arguments, what's the value of looking at these and thinking about these um, in, your in your opinion squared? Okay, um, well— these arguments aren't the most convincing, which is why they're non-traditional. Like all the traditional arguments, um, they, if something, some, if someone thinks of something convincing, that you know gets into the traditional camp because everyone starts using it. These non-traditional arguments, though, they're from like a wide range of different kinds of weird topics. And what I think of value of that is one, it kind of if theism is true, then your God's like the ultimate re fundamental layer of reality. Everything in some way is traceable back to God. So maybe you can make like a meta argument that these non-traditional arguments we have that are based off of all these weird talk topics show that there is a God because he's left his fingerprint on everything. But another thing, I think that these non-traditional arguments could also be useful in like critical thinking, like analyzing these arguments, seeing the logic, and they could also just be fun. Like I think that um, like getting together with somebody, even if like maybe they're a skeptic and just talking through like, Hey, what do you think about the argument from sets? I think that that could be there could be some value in that. It's fun to chew on and think about, and it, yeah. I like the idea of kind of going back into like the implication of like if theism is true, well, what are all the things that could follow, and kind of yeah. thinking about that as we get into like some of these arguments. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. So what we're going to do now is we're going to dive into some of these arguments. I don't have a lot drawn up on my outline. We're going to introduce them um, and I'll see if I have anything intelligent to say on them, which I probably won't. Um, oh, but the okay. first argument we're looking at is the argument from sets. Um, so Square, do you want to talk about like what this is right. and what's going on here? All I think about when I hear of sets is just like my terrible days in pre-calc. Um, so <laughs> what's going on here? Right. Okay. So I'm going to try and move the through these fairly quickly because a lot, some of these have lots of explanation behind them and, um, we have quite a few to go through. So the argument from sets, we're gonna start off with, okay, two views in the philosophy of mathematics um, that are divided on the nature of mathematical entities. Um, so stuff like numbers, functions, sets, um, or geometrical shapes, what are these things? On one side of the aisle, you have the realists who think that these things exist. On the other side, you have the anti-realists who think these things don't exist. We're gonna be looking, okay, which, Set, um, side of the aisle you go to realism, anti-realism, that's a huge debate, but we're going to continue on as if you're accepting you know, all the arguments for realism. Uh, some of those 
an argument like that might look like seven is prime is a true statement. And that looks like Jim is tall. Jim is tall. Commit If that's true, that commits me to the existence of Jim. So if seven is prime, that commits me to the existence of the number seven. Okay. So in realism, there are lots of views. One of them is conceptualism. And that's that these um, things like numbers, function sets, they are thoughts in the mind of God. Uh, another view is kind of like, what's the name of it? Uh, there's another view that uh, these abstract objects, they kind of have like their own independent existence. They're not in the mind of God. Uh, is it like Platonism? Yeah, yeah, Platonism. So this argument, the argument from sets, is that if you're going to be a realist, you, have to, you can't be like a Platonist. You've got to be a conceptualist. So if you're going to be a realist, you can only be a con conceptualist. And if you can only be a conceptualist, well, you've got to commit yourself to the existence of God it's for these the mind for these abstract objects to exist in. Okay, why might you think that? Well, we're actually gonna have to get into set theory. Um, so set theory is broadly speaking, trying to mathematically formalize the con concept of a collection. So you could have a collection of prime numbers of, or an infinite collection of all the prime numbers, that's the set of all prime numbers. Or you could have a collection of all four-sided shapes, that's the set of all four-sided shapes. Uh, we could also have like non-mathematical sets like the set of all humans or the set of all countries, so on and so forth. Okay. Now, what makes a, something a set? Like what kinds of sets are there? If you want to mathematically be precise, is there a set of all sets? Is there a set that doesn't have anything in it? Is there a set which contains itself? So what the original conception of set theory was that if you have a property, then you can have a set which contains all the things with that property. The problem is that that actually arrives at a contradiction with Russell's famous paradox. Um, you talk about, or you can talk about the set of all sets which do not contain themselves. And um, for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to try and spell out that contradiction, but the basic idea is if the set contains itself, then it shouldn't contain itself, but if it doesn't contain itself, so then it should contain itself. So you can't actually just say that any sort of property gives you a set. Okay, so what kinds of things are sets then? Well, the current conception of set theory is very, very intelligent. It's um, Zermelo-Frankel set theory. What it does is it structures sets hierarchically. So we start with like, say the empty set, the set that doesn't contain anything. And then we have rules to build more sets based off of the sets we already have. So I go from the set which contains nothing to the set which contains the set which contains nothing. And then I could have um, the set of the set that contains nothing as well. And also the set of the set which contains nothing. You start building up hierarchically. And the these rules that give you more and more sets give you um, can give you infinitely large sets. And it actually does, doesn't stop there. It could give you sets which are even bigger than the infinitely large sets. And it could give you sets which are bigger than the in those infinitely large sets. And we could keep going iteratively, making bigger and bigger infinite sets. And then we mm -hmm. could take this like iterative hierarchy and put all those sets in one big set and start the process of all over again and making even bigger sets. And, um, the, and do that iteratively and make even bigger sets and so on and so forth. So you could just have like endless upon endless sets, fun times. So <laughs> now like, okay, now we're gonna go back to the conceptualist and the Platonist. The Platonist is going to say that um, these kinds of sets exist if their members exist. Like, what what explanation is for the existence of these sets? The members exist. Um, what's going to be the exist the explanation on conceptualism? Well, God's thinking about those sets. Cool, cool. Now the problem is is that uh, we could okay these sets are like actually existing things under realism. So we could just like talk. We could step outside. Of, for a second, we could imagine that we're actually looking at all those sets. They're just before us and it's all really pretty because they're all, I imagine sets as glowy orbs, but that's just me. So you, we look at all this glowy orbs and I'm like, hey, all those sets over there, they exist, right? So why isn't there a set which contains all of them? Like, hmm. I, I, that's a question I have. Why isn't there a set which contains all of them? And then, um, you know, the, the my interlocutor might say, hold on, the iterative hierarchy doesn't allow you to have a set of all sets. A, a set which is defined as containing all sets is impossible. I'm like, okay, I get that. But all those sets over there, all those glowy orbs I'm looking at, at, I'm looking at, why isn't there a set which contains them? If it did exist, then the rules would take off and start building sets on top of the one that I just 
um, produced. But so it's not going to be the set of all sets for very long. But why doesn't that set currently exist? And that's actually a really difficult question to answer because on the Platonist account, those um, if a, the members of a set exist, then the set itself should exist. So that th this mysterious set we're thinking of, the, um, there's no real explanation under Platonism for why it doesn't exist. Hmm. Under conceptualism, though, you can give a very interesting account of the nature of sets. Um, the, the, on this account, sets aren't necessarily existing things. On, uh, on realist accounts, it's usually thought of that like numbers and uh, functions and all these things are necessarily existing. But maybe sets aren't necessarily existing. They are the product of um, God's mental activity. He has to think about um, creating a set. He has to do the free choice to build a set. So under this account, um, the reason why there isn't a set of all those glowy orbs that I'm looking at, all those sets, is because God just hasn't freely decided to do it. So we can um, actually make an explanation for that. And, you know, okay, so uh, hold on. What does that mean? God could have decided to have just not think of any sets? Well, yes, but God is a good God, so he would presumably create sets so that our mathematical formulas that we write on chalkboards and stuff, and those sets that we're talking about, do actually refer to something. So God has at least thought of those sets. Hmm. Then, like, there could be, like, other sets that, like, God just hasn't created, like, in terms of, like, thinking, like, the mathematical yes. landscape? Yeah, so um, under this uh, theory, there's going to, under this view of conceptualism, there are going to be sets and possible worlds that God has not thought of in this pop, in this, in the actual world. Hmm. So how does this relate to like mathematics? Because if you think of something like two plus two equaling four, um, you think that like that'd be true in like all possible worlds and like conceivable, at least conceivable world where God doesn't exist, um, but two plus two equals four. Um, so in that sense, you might have like mathematical realism to some degree. And I'm just trying to track with like what exactly the argument from sets, like what, like what's the heart of the argument with regards to like what these sets are? Look, the heart of the argument is why aren't there more sets than there actually are? Like, um, mm. that's going, that's going to be a very difficult question to answer if you're a Platonist. If you're a conceptualist, uh, then you could say God hasn't thought of more sets. So that, that's the heart of the argument. I don't understand your question about two plus two equals four. I'm sorry. No, no. I th I think I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the argument. I'm, I think I'm conflating like mathematical realism. Like there's like true mathematical propositions with the idea of like there being sets. Um, so I think mm. that's my issue here. Okay. Do you want to move on to the mm. next argument? Yeah, I think it'd probably be a good fitting thing. Um, um, I'm sure there's much more we can explore here. Um, the next one is like the argument from counterfactuals. Um, yes. so I'm curious. Can you talk about like what's going on here? Okay, cool. So uh, this one, I think, uh, this one and uh, the last one were like originally proposed by Alexander, proposed by Alvin Plantinga, but built on by other philosophers. This one was built on by Alexander Proust, so you know it's going to be good. Um, so this one, a counterfactual is a statement like "if X, then Y." So like, if I was taller, then I would be happier. That's the one I'm going to go off. Of, I'm going to use for this scenario. So w what makes that kind of statement true? So what we imagine is that we the antecedent of it. Tr um, if I was taller, we pick out a world, a possible world, where I am taller. Then we see if the consequent is true. Am I happier in that possible world? Now, the problem is, is that there are a ton of possible worlds where I'm taller than I am in the actual world. There are like infinity of them. And in some of those worlds, I'm going to be happy. Some of those worlds, I'm going to be tortured to death. So there's like a wide variety of these possible worlds where the antecedent holds. So you need some way of choosing uh, one specific possible world so that we could uh, talk about in that possible world is uh, the one where the we're looking at whether or not the consequence is true. So, for example, we look at um, the, the possible world that's the most similar to the actual world where the antecedent holds. The world that's the most similar in as many respects as possible, but I'm still taller. Now, the problem with that is that um, oh, there's a lot of weeds to get into here, but it, that's not very easy to do. It's not very easy to just fi um, find a world that's the closest to ours because which world is closest to ours is a very difficult question to answer. Like I'll give another example. If Queen Elizabeth I was alive, she would be scratching at the inside of her tomb. Okay, why why think about or the inside of her coffin, I mean. Why uh, we might why think that's true? Well, you could think of a world where Queen Elizabeth the first never dies, or you could think about a world where Queen Elizabeth I is born later. But the world that's closest 
is actually one where Queen Elizabeth I was just resurrected just now in her tomb, arguably. And if she was just resurrected, she's inside of a coffin trying to figure out what's going on and is trying to get out. So like trying to pick the closest possible world isn't always really clear what we have to do. We can also just imagine like, um, say, and here's an, another example Alexander Proust gives, four like iron balls, all roughly the same size, but like they differ from like, by like a nanometer. And I could say, if um, one of these balls was made of gold, then it would be the one on the far left. And that uh, might be the closest possible world because that ball just happens to be the smallest of the bunch, but that doesn't seem like the reason why that counterfactual should be true. Hmm. Okay, so how do we get around this problem? Well, what Alexander Proust um, points out is that, hey, our words aren't defined um, completely by us when we use them. Sometimes we appeal to um, experts on a given subject. Like when I say, this iguana is a reptile, what I, I don't really know what the word reptile means. I'm not a, um, an expert in taxonomy, so I don't know what classifies one thing as a reptile and another thing not as a reptile. But I do know that it's a reptile. Um, the word reptile has been defined by experts who have the authority to make this definition. And even though I've never met those experts and I have no idea who they are. So what Alexander Proust says is, okay, if you could have experts defining words, as long as they have the authority, you know, without people ever having met the expert, maybe God defines words. He, he like ultimately defines words with a s amount of precision that allows us to always pick out one possible world in our counterfactuals. Like he has an infinite, God has an infinitely complex definition of taller so that when I say, if I was taller, then I would be happier. The word taller picks out the one specific possible world that would roughly would be required for our purposes in our everyday use of these counterfactuals. And this kind of idea of God picking out words, uh, the definitions of words with infinite precision also has use in other domains. Like if we could talk about um, your, your food is hot, like you just made some dinner and you put the pizza on the table and it's hot, then that proposition, your food is hot, over the course of the night, if you just leave it untouched, it's eventually gonna be false. But is there like at one specific millisecond where it goes from true to false? <clears throat> where it goes from true to false? Well, um, on this view, yes. And you might think that's weird, but we have a perfectly legitimate explanation. God defined the word hot so specifically that um, there's a very specific instant where it's true of, goes from being true of your food to being false of your food. You could also think of other examples like I have a beard, maybe Zach, um, never shaves for like the next couple of years. At, at some point, he's going to have a beard. So it's going to be true that Zach has a beard. But right now, it's false that he has a beard. Presumably, the resolution might be too low on my camera, but it doesn't look like you have one. <laughs> not yet. Okay. So is there Hopefully like some not ever. Yeah, is there some specific nanosecond where it goes from being false to being true where uh, Zach has a beard? Like there's one cell that releases just enough amount of protein so that his hair is long <laughs> enough to that. Uh, in totality, he has a beard. Well, on this view, you know, God defines the words just, you know, specifically enough um, and technically enough that our our sentences always have uh, meanings. And that's pretty cool. And if you don't accept this, then you're either left with like these propositions not having meanings or your or, or sentences like oftentimes being making meaningless just utterances without propositions attached to them, or you're going to have to like throw out classical logic. Like you could say like, you know, there are these degrees of truth to our sentences. Like it's half true that Zach has a beard at some points or, and then it becomes fully true later on, or it's like one third true at other times, but that's not how logic works. Logic just deals in truths and falses. Other things that uh, you could do is say that our sentences are meaningless, but then it's like, okay, is that meaningless? Like you have to, um, you have to say that our sentences express propositions, it seems. Yeah. Hmm. But if it ex uh, expresses a proposition, then what truth value does it have? Yeah, hmm. that, that's my spiel on that argument. Yeah, so, so it's interesting just, again, here, trying to, like, map it out a little bit, like, from my um, never hearing, hearing the argument before perspective. Like, so it's talking about this idea of, like, where we can have these propositions where it's, say, like, squared is cold right now. Um, and at mm -hmm. some point then, well, event, there'd be a point where it's like, well, that proposition would be false and square would actually be hot based off of like a counterfactual of like, well, now it's like 73 versus like 65 inside of his giant mansion that he's living in right now, right now. Oh yeah, um, my amazing so, giant mansion. 
<laughs> um, so like with these propositions, like we would have to be some sort of like grounding then for these propositions. Yeah. Um, and the grounding is, is the free will of God. Yeah, the grounding is uh, God's free will and how to use them. And he would, um, if you think that there's like a, uh, best way for them to be to find like to say match up with uh the way we use them you think that's the best way for words to be defined well then you know god's omnibenevolent so he's going to do that so and for the words to be most useful and whatnot hmm. yeah that's super interesting so i appreciate that a lot and i think it'd be good us to head on to the next argument now yeah. um, which is the onto omniscience argument which is a mouthful um yes. so you talk about like what it is what's going on here and you, you talk about having like an interesting story with regards to, like the motivations for that argument um right so what's okay. going on here squared yeah so we, we, the, those past arguments were like developed by other people now we're delving into like arguments i've come up with so uh, if the quality <laughs> These are changes, 10 times better right yeah yeah sure so <laughs> um the ontoomniscience argument so i think it was carnides or carnides like that philosopher greek philosopher guy who came up with um arguments like uh, God's never in danger, so God can't be courageous, and God lacks no knowledge, so God can't be clever. Um, and because being courage requires danger, and being clever uh, requires a lack of knowledge, so there are these good properties that God doesn't have. And mm. I think that's a very interesting argument. And there are tons of responses you could give, like, well, you know, Jesus was incarnate and he had courage, and or um, you could just bite the bullet and say, I don't care if God has courage or cleverness. There are a bunch of different responses you could give. One response I like to give is, hold on, just say, you know, God is courageous. God is clever. Um, because being courageous isn't referring to a, um, like a state that you're currently in. It's based on a conditional claim. It's that if I were in danger, then I would act with valor. That's what courage is, for example. Mm -hmm. And I could say that is true of God. God, if he were in danger, would act with valor. It's just that he's never in danger. It's like, okay. The, my, the interlocutor might say, well, that doesn't seem like a good property. You say, okay, why not? Well, he never uses that property in any possible world. It's okay, so what? Well, the interlocutor at this point would have to give a principle like, well, if you never like exemplify a property in any possible world, then it's not a good property. And okay, I'm we're gonna ditch Carnitas for now and just focus on that principle because like you can talk with say a skeptic and they will bring forth this intuition on their own that um, if um, X isn't ex uh, exemplified in a possible world, then it's not a good property. You could actually um, just do contraposition. You could find the logically equivalent proposition that if X is a good property, then it is exemplified in some possible world. Hmm. And what does that give you? Well, say the property of being god that's good i mean it's defined as being maximally great so you know that's a good property which means that um it's exemplified in some possible world and hey isn't that the first step of the modal ontological argument that gets you to the existence of god if you don't know what the modal ontological argument is uh you, hopefully zach has another video on it <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what it is then you know nothing and i'm just joking it's really confusing but it also it is. makes sense Yes. Okay. For all of this, I'm going to have to assume that you have like a basic grasp or like a pretty mm -hmm. good grasp yeah. of like on the, uh, necessity and contingency and possible worlds. Cause I'm just going to be throwing that language around a lot for this. <laughs> so let's do it. Yeah. So uh, what the interlocutor at this point could say is like, okay, I'm just going to weaponize this principle and say, okay, what about um, a necessarily existent omniscient turtle? Okay. That's the property, the property of being a necessarily existent omniscient turtle. Um, mm. That's a good property, right? So by yeah. your logic, by this principle that we've just come to, uh, there is a necessarily existent omniscient turtle in some possible world. Therefore, a necessarily existent omniscient turtle actually exists. It's like, oh, that's kind if of only. weird. Yeah, that's kind of weird. So what, what do you do? Well, I think you have to patch the principle to say that any atomic property, if it's good, is exemplified in some possible world. I think that's a very natural way of uh, patching up the principle. Okay, what do I mean by atomic property? I mean like a property that doesn't have a conjunction in it. So if I like give the property of being a bearded president, um, that's actually just two properties, the property of being a president and the property of being bearded. And they are combined to make this one like molecular property. You have like the atomic properties making the molecular property. Um, so, the property of being a necessarily existent omniscient turtle is like just a bunch of different properties combined to one uh, larger property, the atoms of which are the property of being a turtle, the property of being necessarily existent, and the property of being omniscient. 
cool. So if a, an atomic property is good, then it's exemplified in some possible world. So that's cool. But the problem is now the is, that gives the skeptic um, or the interlocutor the, a way of dodging this uh, inference to God by saying, hold on, then I could accept that the, in so, I could just say, um, you know, God's properties, his atomic properties, like being omnipotent, being omniscient, being morally good, um, those are all like individually uh, exemplified, but in different possible worlds. They're not all exemplified in the same being. So we have like a necessary being. Okay, that's a good property, but like that's um, maybe the initial state of the universe or whatever. And then in these other possible worlds that we're not a part of, um, you have an omnipotent being in one and an omniscient being in another and a morally good being in another or morally perfect mm -hmm. being in that in the other. So that, that motivates... I think that's an interesting way to go about it. I, I actually believe being God, that's just the property of being perfect. So that is atomic. But if the skeptic goes down that route, well, can we actually give an argument from the possibility of an omniscient being to a, the actual existence of an omniscient being or the hmm. property of, or the possibility of an omnipotent being to the actual existence of an omnipotent being? So that's what... Um, the, so I, I started thinking about that, specifically omniscience. And actually during his sermon... Uh, at my church, I thought of an argument from an omniscient being to the, uh, the possibility of an omniscient being to the actual existence of an omniscient mm -hmm. being. And uh, I didn't want to lose my attention to the sermon. So I took one of those papers that are like, hey, get, we want to get to know you. Please fill out your name. <laughs> I did fill out my name. I just put down the argument. And then I um, later when I was home, I started thinking about what I had written. And I was <laughs> under the impression that it's cheating. It's like on Anselm's original ontological argument. It doesn't actually work, but it's really hard to figure out where the flaw is. I couldn't see the flaw, even though I came up with it. But I was under the impression that it did have a flaw. Does it have a flaw? Well, let me get into the argument. So the first premise is, obviously, possibly an omniscient being exists. And if you, uh, you're a skeptic and you're aware of the modal ontological argument, you know that when there's a possibility premise, you gotta you, you got to be skeptical because... Um, in the modal ontological argument, what do those theists do? They snuck in necessary existence. S5 that for the win. <laughs> right. So we got to be skeptical. What are you sneaking in here, Squared? I'm not sneaking in anything. I'm just saying that in a possible world, there's a being which knows all truths. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm not saying he's necessarily existing. I'm not saying he's not necessarily existing. Just that he's omniscient. Coolio. Okay, so he knows all truths. Fun. What are some truths, Zach? I don't know. Two plus two equals four. That's the truth. So in this possible world, there's a being who knows that two plus two equals four. Um, no bachelor can be married. That's cool. That's cool. That's um, true. So that uh, being in that possible world knows it because he knows all truths. Now, here's an interesting um, truth. Uh, Canada borders America. Well, that's true. So that's in this being's knowledge because we said all truths are in his knowledge. But that's a bit weird because that's not a necessary truth. Actually, we could be more specific. We could like name the the world the possible world we're all in let's just call it at and we could say at uh, like the at symbol i saw i read that in a paper and i thought it was fun so at hmm. is actual um at is the actual world that's a true proposition and we said all true propositions are in this being's knowledge because it's omniscient huh cool so this being in this possible world wherever that possible world is it knows that at is actual okay well now we have two options either this being is in the actual world. That possible world that we said this omniscient being was in is the actual world, or the the possible world we said this omniscient being was in wasn't the actual, actual isn't the actual world. Okay, so if the omniscient being is in the actual world and it knows all about the actual world, that's totally fine. I know stuff about the actual world and I'm in the actual world. Totally cool. It's just the omniscient being would know way more about the actual world than I do. Now, if we say that the possible world that this omniscient being is in isn't the actual world, then it's like sitting in a non-actual world, knowing that it doesn't exist, knowing that over there, those people in that possible world, they exist, but I don't. And that's that's kind of weird because um, it knows at is actual and it knows that it doesn't exist in at. So how does it do that? It, it seems like metaphysical voodoo to posit that there's a non-actual being who knows all truths about the actual world while never actually being existing in the actual world. Okay, but I could say that it's weird until I'm blue in the face. I'll actually give an argument that it's impossible for a non-actual being to know that at is actual without um, being in at. So for it to 
actually know that ad is actual. It's going to have to have some sort of justification. It's not just guessing. Out of all the possible worlds, out of the infinity of them, it knows that ad is actual. So it has like some sort of actuality detecting faculty. Is that possible? I don't think so, but we'll try and derive a contradiction from it. So possible worlds in like the modal landscape, they're all frozen. Uh, you can't change a possible world. If you make a change in a possible world, you're just looking at another possible world. So this possible world where the omniscient being is, who has his actuality tracking device focused, pointing him towards at being actual. Okay, that possible world, we're looking at it. It's a possible world. So it could have been actual. If it was actual, then what would the actuality tracking device point at? Well, possible worlds, they're frozen. It, it's actuality detecting a device would still be pointing at at, even though at is, isn't actual. If this possible world, other possible world were actual, then its um, actuality tracking device would have malfunctioned. So you can't actually have this actuality tracking device. It's an incoherent concept. Okay, cool. So that means that this second option of the omniscient being not be, being in some non-actual possible world, we can't have that. So the omniscient being exists in the actual world. So therefore, an omniscient being actually exists. Now, oh. yeah, that, that's the argument. Now, Joe Schmidt from the Majesty of Reason helpfully pointed out why, uh, what, where he thinks the flaw of the argument is. And I think he's actually correct. I think that this argument does have a fatal flaw. And that's that um, when we talk about all truths, we have to index that to possible worlds because in different possible worlds, all truths refers to different things. Mm. So like um, a possible world where unicorns exist, for example, it's true that unicorns exist, but in the actual world, they don't. I'm sorry if there are any unicornists in the audience, mm -hmm. but like you're wrong. Anyways, when I gave the um, the first premise, an omniscient being exists in some possible world, what you're probably thinking is there's a being uh, who exists in some possible world W who knows all truths in W. But mm -hmm. I didn't actually say that. I left it uh, sneakily vague. So yeah, I'm sorry. I pulled the trickaroo in the possibility premise once again, but I didn't do it intentionally, so you can't get mad at me. Um, what I did is I just said a omniscient um, being exists in some possible world simpliciter, and no, a being knows all truth, and in some possible world, a being knows all truths simpliciter. Because I didn't specify, what that automatically goes to is that um, in some possible world, an omniscient being knows all truths in the actual world. But you once you you can't accept that. That's a, like a really um, weighty premise to accept. It's kind of like ex um, accepting the premise that there's a necessary being in some possible world. You're not going to do that without some sort of justification. So um, it's that kind of switcheroo in the premise by not indexing the statement all truths is where this kind of this argument I think um, kind of uh, derails. So. I think it's still interesting, and I think it could still teach you a lot about how to critically analyze arguments. But I, at, at its current formulation, I don't think it succeeds. Hmm. That's super interesting, and I'd love to think about that more. Um, we're going to keep on going. We have a couple yep. more arguments to look at, and then we're going to do a little bit of Q&A at the end, if that works for you, Squared. Okay. Um, so the next one is the political argument for the existence <laughs> of God. So I'm yes. interested about how this is going to go. Um, yeah. So. I'm Let's not going to get into any political issue. Actually, there's a really <laughs> funny story behind this one. Uh, it's I was in high school. I had like this philosophy course, and it was really self-directed. I could just basically I had to write an essay uh, broadly on some topic, and um, besides that, I could just choose whatever I wanted to write about. And I was really into like metaphysics and Molinism. I was really on a kick back then uh, for huh. all these fun things. So that that was like what all my papers were writing about. Like free will. Oh, I'm just going to talk about Molinism. Oh, morality? I'm just going to talk about Molinism. It's just <laughs> going on, talking about Molinism. And then my uh, teacher's like, well, okay, you got to do one um, essay on the philosophy of politics. I'm like, but I want to do Molinism. It's like, no, it's got to be on politics. But I want to do Molinism. You're forced. I you have no choice. Yeah. It's like, I don't write the rubric. Rubric, you got to do on Molinism. Like, fine. Okay, how do I make a political essay on Molinism? So <laughs> what I did was I uh, decided to write on what political structures would work best if Molinism was true. That's what I decided to write about. <laughs> and okay. what I realized um, like a year later is that the political structures that would work best given Molinism are all the political structures which actually exist. <laughs> so like we could think of like 
um, a political spectrum from like totalitarianism to like pure democracy, totalitarianism, one person mm. decides everything to a pure democracy where it's like you have everybody vote on issues. Yeah. And we'll say that like roughly speaking, they're both, they're equally expected um, without more background knowledge. So now we're going to just a priori consider what kind of um, political, where God would prefer on the political spectrum uh, if Molinism was true. So we're going to consider a case where you have a society and we're just going to limit on a couple choices. They are all going to vote on policy A and they're all going to decide who to marry. Um, so of the feasible, oh, I'm assuming you know about Molinism in this one, just for yes, sake yeah, of brevity. I think, I think, yeah, and if you don't know what Molinism is, I encourage you to pause it and check it out. Um, so, yeah. yeah, so you're good. Okay, so there will be... Um, Okay, so we have all the feasible worlds that are open to God. Uh, and a lot of them, people will choose the right uh, person to marry. And a lot of them, people will vote on the right political issues. But there will be fewer worlds where people vote on the correct political issue and marry the correct person. Hmm. However, God can actually get around this if he gives one person all the political power. That one person just uh, is going to completely decide whether or not they're going to vote for policy A. And everybody else is going to vote on, or is just going to decide who to marry. If that's the case, then God doesn't have to worry about getting individuals to get the, make the correct policy choice and marry the correct person. They could all have completely diluted political views for all he cares that don't work with his plan at all, but they're marrying the correct person. And the dictator is true. He could just get him separately to get the correct political, uh, make the correct political decisions. Hmm. So uh, according to this a priori reasoning, God would prefer like dictatorships over pure democracies. So, and okay. We think about that. What kinds of uh, political views have been the most common throughout history? Well, or like the political structures. Well, we have lots and lots of like monarchies, oligarchies, totalitarian regimes, all of these strung out throughout history. So our a priori reasoning about Molinism manifests itself in the actual world throughout history. Um, okay, now what are some objections to this? I'm gonna just jump into some of those. Uh, one, you might be able to uh, beat me in your history knowledge and try and like argue that um, actually democratic principles are more popular than that. To clarify, this argument isn't that all um, civilizations would be um, kind of like more oligarchies. It's that oligarchies would be much more common than democracies. Okay. Hmm. And that's what we see. So another thing you could give, I think the most devastating objection to, um, there are two really devastating objections, I think, or two, well, not devastating. There are two strong objections. One is mm -hmm. that this argument assumes Molinism, which is a very controversial view of God's foreknowledge. So like all the problems with Molinism are going to transfer to problems with this argument. I'm pretty convinced of Molinism, so that doesn't affect me as much. What affects me much more, or like my position is that competing alternatives like alternative worldviews like naturalism should be able to just as easily give kinds of accounts for these political structures like maybe an evolutionary biologist could say why like dominance hierarchies or blah 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 lead to the existence of these political structures more often yeah so that's my analysis huh. of the argument yeah, no, that's super interesting. And another one of these ones that we I need to chew on a lot. There's just so much fun stuff here. Um, yeah. but the last one we'll look at, and then we'll do a little bit of Q&A, see if you have questions or if you want to send a super chat, that always helps and you, you get it first, um, is the argument from time travel. Um, mm, yes, so what is the argument from time travel for God's existence? Okay. So if you uh, are on Joe Schmidt's channel and see, um, uh, hit, if you've seen his discussion with Alex Milepass on causal finitism, or you've been following the exchange, the, uh, like those YouTube video debates between rationality rules and capturing Christianity, you're going to know about causal finitism. And really quickly, causal finitism is the idea that, roughly speaking, chains of cause and effect can't be infinitely long. They can only be finitely long. Causal finitism seems to imply something theism-like because, you know, there's a first, uh, the finite chain of cause and effect in our world if causal finitism is true, it needs to originate with some uncaused first cause. So that seems really like theism is true. And yeah. uh, okay, how do you motivate causal finitism? Uh, with these kinds of paradoxes that arise if you allow for the existence of um, ca infinite causal chains. A very common example is the Grim Reaper paradox. So the idea is you could set up Grim Reapers with uh, a given command. Like if you find Fred alive, then kill him. Um, and you order them 
excuse me, you order them in a specific way. And if you have infinity of them, then you could produce a literal contradiction, P and not P. So, okay, the per you're looking at this paradox and you're saying, okay, how do I kill this paradox? How do I say that, like, how do I get around this impossibility? And what you can say is um, you could just be a causal finitist. If causal finitism is true, then this whole scenario is impossible because you can't have grim reapers. Now, what yeah. the... What an interlocutor, or is there something you wanted to say? No, 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 I was good. I was just trying to follow along. You're good. Okay. Keep going. So what an interlocutor is going to want to say is that, hold on. Okay, we have these two propositions, okay? Um, the Grim Reapers are commanded to act in such and such a way, and you have infinite Grim Reapers. And you can't have these in conjunction, because that produces a contradiction. So um, you can't have A and B in, in a contradiction, so we say B is impossible. Um, but that's not how we look at philosophy. If I say Alice is taller than Bob and Bob is taller than Alice, that releases or that produces a contradiction. But when we look at that A and B producing a contradiction, we don't say B is therefore impossible. We don't say that it's impossible for Bob to be taller than Alice. We say that it's impossible for Bob to be taller than Alice and Alice be taller than Bob at the same time. So we, when we look at this Grim Reaper scenario, we shouldn't say that it's impossible to have infinite chains. We should say it's impossible to have infinite chains and have them follow these certain commands at this, at, uh, in this certain way. You could command finitely many Reapers to do that, and you could have infinitely many Reapers without this command, but you can't have infinitely many Reapers with this command. Hmm. And that, that's what the, uh, in, the interlocutor to a causal finitist would probably say. Okay, now what, what's the big objection to this? Well, pretty much that this seems really mysterious. It like commits you to these weird mysterious forces because like say I have infinite reapers lined up and they're all really obedient. So I'm about to give them the command about how to kill Fred. Um, if I do that, I'll literally violate the laws of logic. So what happens? Uh, something's gotta happen. Like I have to slip on a banana peel or maybe I have a brain aneurysm. Something's gotta happen. So I don't actually give that command. And it seems really mysterious. Like I could get really close to giving that command, but something's gotta swoop in and stop me from doing it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise lo the laws of logic are violated. Okay. And um, you know, the in interlocutors, the causal finitists will push back on this, but like, you know, I'm just gonna move on to time travel. Time travel produces all, uh, famously, lots of paradoxes on its own, and causal finitism doesn't help you there. Um, if I like go back in time and kill my grandfather, then uh, my parents never existed, so I never existed, so I never killed my grandfather, therefore contradiction. Okay, um, how do you kill that paradox? Um, well, maybe you could go the same mysterious force route, like it's impossible for me to time travel, but just not possible for me to kill my grandfather. With I just slip on a banana peel or something, you'd have this mm -hmm. mysterious force. And I'm thinking about this, so I'm like, you know, hey, I believe in mysterious forces. I believe, you know, God exists. Yeah. Um, maybe God can play the role of those mysterious forces stopping those paradoxes. So to spell that out a little bit more clearly, um, the causal finitist is going to say, here's my metaphysical principle. Um, infinite causal chains are impossible. And okay, I'm going to give my metaphysical principle. God really hates paradoxes, so he's always going to stop them. I'm going to call, I, I call this kind of view modal maximalism because it really doesn't commit you to anything besides the existence of God. Like if you take modal maximalism that God's do the one who's stopping these paradoxes, then you could believe in infinitely long chains or you could believe in time travel. And it's like, well, what about these paradoxes? What it, would they ever happen? No, they wouldn't ever happen. God would stop them. And some objections, mostly by Joe Schmid, I, I, I emailed him about this and uh, he gave me his thoughts, which were very helpful. His first objection, I, I, I struggle to really grasp it. It's that um, modal maximalism dresses up as an explanation, but it doesn't really give an explanation to why these are impossible. And I don't really, I don't really get that because, like, I I could give um, a very similar kind of way that um, you would use the modal maximalism type explanations for in a case which we would agree that something is being explained. Like, you know, we're theists. We probably don't believe in gratuitous evils because you know God is going to make sure that all evils are ultimately justified. So then I have to you know, explain um, why are gratuitous evils impossible? And I could say, well, you know, God hates gratuitous evils and he's omnipotent, so he's always going to stop them. And um, what that would mean is that like, if there was a button that if I pressed, it would make a gratuitous evil, God's like, I can't ever actually press that. Like I'd slip on a banana peel or I'd get a brain aneurysm before I could press it because God's always going to make sure that I can't actually 
cause a gratuitous evil because he hates them. Okay, I just do the same kind of explanation for modal maximalism. Why can't I do a, um, why can't I cause a paradox? Well, because God's going to stop me. Um, I'm going to, he's going to make sure I slip on a banana peel or something. He just, he just hates paradoxes. Now, okay, uh, is this better or worse than causal finitism? Well, causal finitism, it commits you to some stuff. It commits you to, say, the finitude of the past or, um, on some accounts, a discrete um, theory of time. Uh, it commits you to a ton of stuff, whereas modal maximalism, it doesn't commit you to any of that. That's why it's called modal maximalism. You could, in your uh, modal space, you could have whatever you want there. You could have uh, time travel. You could have um, whatever kind of time you like, just whatever you want. And whenever there's a po uh, possible world that is going towards a paradox, it's stopped because God necessarily hates paradoxes. Okay, well, is this more or less economic than um, causal finitism? Does it commit me to more things? Well, you, you do need to realize, like, it commits you to the existence of God, modal maximalism. But what the causal finitist is trying to uh, show through their arguing for causal finitism is that um, there is a God. That's what their causal finitism is trying to show. So if that's the case, then the people, the proponents of causal finitism are show, um, like arguing for a view which entails the existence of God. Okay, so then that means that my view isn't any more or less, um, it doesn't entail you to, or sorry, it doesn't commit you to anything more than standard causal finitism because modal maximalism just has it built, it like cuts out the middleman of all this stuff about uh, finite causal chains and just brings you to the existence of God and uses that to answer why there aren't any paradoxes. Now, hmm. the most devastating objection, yeah. which I don't think actually goes through in my books is uh, like the one that has the most weight to it. I don't think it actually devastates anything, but the one that has the most weight to it is um, that it makes the law of non-contradiction dependent upon God because it's mm. God who's doing these things to stop all these contradictions from happening. So the fact that contradictions don't happen is uh, dependent upon God, but the law of non-contradiction can't depend on an agent. Now, some theists deny that. Some theists think that, you know, the law of non-contradiction can totally depend on an agent, but I'm not, of the, I'm not one of those theists. Well, what I'm going to say is like, okay, you look at all the broadly logically possible metaphysical theories. You got naturalism over there. You got, um, I don't know, I, you got theism over here and you got um, other forms of theism, other forms of naturalism. You got all these um, different uh, broadly logically possible metaphysical theories. Now we go to the modal maximalism one. Uh, under this theory, causality in its very essence is something which depends upon God. So what you're going to have to do, is, when you look at this, you have to imagine for this paradox to happen, you have to cut God out of the picture and his actions for the paradox to actually unravel. But that's not really a problem because like we already say, we already know that causality in its essence is something that depends upon God. So when we take God out of the picture and we get contradictions, that's totally expected. It's not because um, law of non-contradiction is, is dependent upon God. It's that this metaphysical theory is interwoven. God and causality are interwoven. So if you um, break it apart, you get the contradiction. Hmm. That's, yeah, that's just really interesting. You <laughs> think about it more. I know I keep seeing the same thing every time. <laughs> like, that's why I, that's why I was really looking forward to this stream. I was, I was looking at like our notes and I was like, oh my gosh, there's all these things and I have no idea what's yeah. going on. Um, and these are really fun. weird. Kind of it's fun to just mull and think about these things. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're going to do now, if it works for you, Square, is go to a little bit of Q&A. Um, cool. And then we'll wrap things up here in about 10 minutes. So if you have questions or super chats or anything like that, feel free to put those in. Um, there's a couple things we'll get to to start. Um, first, I want to say, uh, Chris, thank you so much for becoming a YouTube member. Appreciate it so much. Um, support means a lot. And if you enjoy our channel, you can join and become a member. Um, and that, that helps a lot. Um, we have a question from Andre Orisk. says, can we get an argument from the perfection of squares? Ah, cool. I'll work on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if a, if a, if a perfect square could possibly exist and God could possibly exist and S5 possibly ne necessarily um God exists. Yeah. So. Or maybe that's just the, cuz the necessity necessity operator is a square. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um Swift C says um will project squared ever do a face reveal? Is that Um I don't know, maybe in the future, but I I'm not for a while I don't think. With you, a giant mansion, I'm sure that that can happen. Um, what if they're like? I know we are. We don't really have time to get into it anymore. But do you have any other like fun arguments for the existence of God that you've like thought about or mold about? Yes, um, I'm I'm planning on doing videos on them. But I have like uh, 
I thought about an argument from fictional characters and an argument from tables, like dinner tables, like, you know, physical wooden tables. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Where do you, yes. I'm curious, what got you interested in like philosophy and like thinking about these things? Cause like, I've thought about like these things for a couple years now, but like, yeah, I've never thought um, of like an argument from like dinner tables for the existence of God. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, I just like, you know, philosophy and um, I start think, I just think about like, Hey, this random branch of philosophy, is there like any sort of argument here that I could make? <laughs> and uh, then something, you know, you pray about it, something might hit you, something might not. Uh, what got me into it was, you know, I just had atheist friends who uh, uh, questioned me about apologetic stuff and I, I didn't really have answers. Then I, um, then there was like this progression. I found a pr Frank Turek book, uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it's like mm -hmm. you know, pretty intro stuff. Then uh, you go from there to William Lane Craig and, you know, consumed a lot of his content then go from there to Alexander Proust. And now you're at like, there's like this sort of progression in the kind of um, philosophers I, I'm uh, reading about and stuff. So that's what's got me to here. Yeah. yeah there's levels to this. Um, yeah. It's interesting. just like how much there out there there is in like philosophy stuff. Um, yeah. Andreo says, um, asking once again, what are your thoughts on Loke's book on the resurrection? Hoping to get it physically and want to know what I'm getting into. I read the book. Um, I'll just interrupt here in, for a moment. Okay. You know, it's nice, you know, I can do what I want. I read the book. It was actually pretty interesting. Um, mm. It was like a year ago. I read it. Um, I like how he gave like a deductive proof almost. Yeah. Um, I like the very, way like, structures Loke style. It. Yeah. That, that, that's my favorite uh, part about the book. I think that like, the very, the structure of how he um, lays it out, like, what are your doubts, which premise or like which step of this are you uh, worrying about? Then you could like very clearly get into, um, look at the historical evidence for this section of um, the re uh, the case for the resurrection. So yeah, that, that, that are my, those are my basic thoughts on it. Yeah, deductive arguments are fun, but then like I'm also like very attracted to like Grim Oppie's idea of like theories coming before arguments and all that fun mm -hmm. stuff. So um, yeah. Um, Squared, we're around the end of our time. So do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you want to say before we start to wrap things up here? Um, not much. I um, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I think it's very nice that you invited me on. So yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, no, it's been so much fun to have you on, and I appreciate you coming on and talking about all these fun ideas that are worth mulling about and thinking about with regards to like arguments for the existence of God. So thanks. I'd encourage everyone if you're new here, um, subscribe. But what I meant to say is check out the Apologetic Square YouTube channel. It's like if you're watching via YouTube, you can click and join. Um, and if you're not, if you're listening via podcast, you can just search Apologetic Square. Great channel. All kinds of fun, interesting things that are relevant, um, but also things like this that are like still relevant, of course, but like non-traditional in terms of like arguments for this mm -hmm. Um So also court sites of fun stuff. Um, and then you can check out our channel, um, here in Apologetics, or subscribe, leave a like, all those fun things. And if you enjoy, you can support us at patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. For as little as a dollar a month, your support means a lot. So if you want to do that, I'd be much appreciated. But Square, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. I really enjoyed talking with you. Okay. Yeah, me too. Thanks. And thank you everyone who tuned in. Andre, Odago, Orange, everyone else. Have a good one and God bless.